Do me a favor and track down a Bible if you can. There are Bibles down in baskets by your feet. And get with me to Psalm 1. Uh, in the Bibles that we have, that'd be on page 431, if I remember correctly, but you can find it. Um, Psalm chapter 1, we're doing a series called Game Changer. We're looking at different things that we can do, things that we can believe in, that if we will do them, there's, there's power in them and they change us. They are means of grace that God has given to us. They're spiritual habits that if we leverage, that if we build into the rhythms of our lives, then it can profoundly shape us and change us. And uh, we've been talking about this for a handful of weeks, and we've looked at some different elements, but this morning, we're going to look at this idea of Bible reading. And so Psalm chapter 1 gives us, it's an introduction to an entire book of all these different psalms, but it's telling us about this way of engaging with God and delighting with Him through His law. And so this is a very profound, I think a very profound spiritual habit, and one that I hope that uh, more and more people from our campus will embrace, and one that I know is hard to do. Um, So all of that being said, let's read it, pray, and then we'll get to work. Psalm chapter 1, starting in verse 1, reads like this. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. So let's pray and we'll get to work. Lord, we ask right now, by your spirit, through your word, that you would speak, that we would hear your voice, that you, God, even this morning would help us to delight in your law, that you would help us to see beautiful things here for us, and that we would be moved by them, that we would be changed by them, God. And would you inspire us to make engagement with your word, with your law, a habit of our lives, because it's there that we find you. So, Lord, we just commit this time to you and ask for you to have your way with it. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 1 presents to us two ways to live. It shows us this comparison and this contrast between the way of the righteous, the one who delights in God, and the way of the wicked. And it it makes this contrast, and then it divides it into a few different categories. It shows us that there's a contrast in the value system that there's a contrast in the fruitfulness of their lives, and there's a contrast in the outcome of the way of life. So let's work at that one at a time. The first thing is this contrast of values. There's a difference, there's a marked difference between somebody who delights in God and somebody who does not. That's the the worldview or the paradigms are showing up. There, There are people who the Bible declares as righteous, and here's one of the features of being righteous. You value God. You have come to see that God is incredibly valuable, and so you align your life to finding places where you can encounter more and more of him, where you can experience more of him, and the more that you do that, the more that you come to love and appreciate him. And then there's another way of going about life, and that is one where you disregard God. Your value system is different. It's informed by culture or by your preferences or or any number of things, but instead of thinking about God, 
Instead of wondering about what he might have to say about your life, you begin to think about other things. And you just, dis, you just disregard the things of God. And so that contrast is clearly seen in verses 1 and 2. So it says, Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates on his law day and night, is telling us that there's this way of life that can be called blessed. That you can, you can do life in a way where you're experiencing the favor of God, where you're, experience his, you're experiencing his, his, blessed, his, his blessing, and, and therefore you're experiencing happiness, and you're experiencing God's favor and his presence and all those different things. And it amounts to doing, to avoiding certain things and then to engaging in certain things. On the one hand, we need to avoid engagement with what's called wicked here. We're told that the person who's blessed doesn't engage in these different things. They, they don't walk with the wicked. They don't stand with the sinners. They don't sit in the company of mockers. And so a part of knowing God and following God and enjoying God is to recognize there are certain things that God doesn't want us to engage in. And, and it's telling us that we need to be careful because there's a progression here. That there are people who will walk, they'll begin walking, and that's kind of a, a, talking about a way of life. They're walking, they're doing these certain things, but then we find them standing, they're more engaged with that community, and then finally they're sitting, they're counted among them. And if we're not careful, that's the, that's the trajectory that we take as well, that we don't think about the things of God and we begin to slowly onboard this worldly way of life. It's telling us that the blessed people are those who do not do that. And I'm not suggesting here that this is promoting this monastery lifestyle where we say, hey, we're Christians, so we, we withdraw from everything. We don't want to catch anything that those wicked people might have. Uh, if we read it that way, then Jesus wouldn't be doing this. But what did he do? He, he spent time among people who were wicked, among people who were called unrighteous, but he did it in a way that was distinct. He did it in a way that revealed that his holiness led to his mission. That his, that his ability to be righteous with God moved him toward other people to love them and to invite them into that kind of relationship. But a part of being righteous is that we would avoid these different categories of, of wickedness. And so here's my encouragement to us. How can we think more about that? Because truthfully, I wonder if we don't spend a lot of time reflecting on the things of God. And so we just kind of go with the flow and we find ourselves walking in that way and standing in that way and sitting in that way. And we've not really reflected on it very much. We need to be people who instead we, we, we should think through what would it look like for me to walk with God in this situation, in my workplace, in these relationships? What would it look like for me to display personal holiness as I go about my life to the places that God sends me? But, but part of uh, the value system is that this person avoids these certain things. And then positively put, the value system of the righteous is that they delight in God. Look at, the, look at verse 2. Those whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditate on his law day and night. The value system shows up in the way that we begin to love and appreciate the things of God. And so the things of God become this kind of ongoing Thing that we're meditating on, we're reflecting on it, we're wondering about it, and we're thinking about how it applies to our lives. And, and the psalm, I mean, obviously it's, it's saying way more than just 
have a personal time where you get up and you read your Bible. It's certainly saying there's more to it than that. It's not just this activity that you wake up and you go, okay, I got to do my personal Bible reading and get that done. It's definitely saying more than that, but it also isn't saying less. Somebody who has a value system that delight in the Lord, they're actually going to look to engage with God through his word with some kind of consistency because they know that it's there that God has revealed himself and it's there that they can come to know him in a more profound way and they can come to figure out how to serve him and live together with him. And so we need to be people who use our devotions, if you will, our personal Bible reading, our Bible engagement, aiming at when I do this, I want to experience God so that I can delight in him. I want to read the Bible so that my life could be informed by what God is saying today. That's what we're after. We want a people who are personal Bible readers, delighting in the law of the Lord, reflecting on the things of God, thinking about how does that apply to my life? How does this show up in the ordinary rhythms and routines of my life? And, and, and that's what we're after. Now, how do we get there? How do you take Bible reading, which for some people can seem daunting and you know, scary and maybe even boring, and how does it go from being something like that to being something you delight in and you look forward to? I'll tell you how. I've got some exercise equipment in my basement. And Ash and I, we, well, I purchased it and Ash said, are you really going to use that stuff? And I'm like, oh yeah, for sure. And then it's down there collecting dust because I can come up with all kinds of different excuses of why it's inconvenient to, to work out and all that stuff. So there's a reality here where working out, you can come up with reasons why you don't want to do it. But then for some reason, you might get into a season where you go, I'm going to push through this thing and I'm going to be disciplined about it. And I'm going to do it for, you know, a few days in a row. And before you know it, you actually find yourself benefiting from it. And you actually find yourself, weird people I know, but find, the, find yourself enjoying it. That's kind of how Bible reading works. If you sit around and you go, I'm going to wait until I delight in God and I just want to read his Bible. It might never happen. But what if you say, I'm going to go to the word of God, knowing that he's there, that he'll speak to me through it. And I'm going to trust that if I encounter him, that it really could become something that I deeply enjoy. The Bible, God himself says, taste and see that the Lord is good. You're going to go to it. And I don't think it's a hard sell. When you start reading the law of the Lord and when you start experiencing God through it, it becomes a delight. It becomes a joy. And that's been my own experience. But when you're reading it, you're thinking through, how does this apply to my life? So even for me this week, I'll just give you a quick example. I was reading in, in Ezekiel, which is a challenging book to read. But there was a description of what God is going to do and what the shepherds are going to do. And he says, the shepherd's going to hold out his rod and every sheep is going to cross, go under this rod. And I remember maybe it was a sermon I had heard a long time ago about you know, it's an inspection that there are sheep that are coming by and there's this close investigation of that sheep. And so I was reading this week and I just thought of you guys and I thought, man, what I want to do as a pastor is I want to grow in my awareness of you. I want to have that close connectedness with you. So my Bible reading went from just information to now it's, think, it's really thinking about how does this affect my life? How can I do a better job as a pastor of knowing each and every one of you, of knowing kind of the condition of the flock, the condition of each and every member and what's happening in their lives? That's what happens when we begin to engage with the Bible and we say, what does this mean for me? 
And when you do it, it does become this joy and this delight, but not so with the wicked. You see in the negative aspect that they, they don't even give a thought to it. The wicked aren't sitting around going, I wonder what God says about this. They're just living their lives. But we need to be the kind of people who value deeply the things of God and are looking for opportunities to know what that is and apply it to our lives. The second thing we find here is that there's a contrast in fruitfulness in verses 3 and 4. The person who delights in the law of the Lord, look at verse 3, that person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yield its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. It's telling us that there's a fruitfulness. If you make God and his ways your value, it's going to show up in the way that you live, that you're going to produce a certain kind of thing, that you're going to be healthy and that your life is going to begin to display this fruitfulness. And every, it's even giving us a promise that whatever we do then would prosper, but you're going to be like this person or this tree that's planted by streams of water. You're getting the, the sustenance that you need. You're getting the nutrition that you need. Um, Ash and I, we kill plants. It's one of our hobbies, apparently. But we'll buy something, we'll put it on our porch, and Ash will say, hey, babe, can you water this thing? And I'll go, yeah, no problem. But then I get busy, and I forget about this plant that's sitting out on the porch. And it doesn't get the water that it needs, and so it dies. And then we buy a new one, and I kill that one. And it's just this pattern that we have. But here we're told, if you value the things of God, if you make that a part of your rhythm in life, that you're going to his law and you're encountering him, you become like a tree that's planted by streams of water. You become like this firmly rooted individual who always has the sustenance that you need and everything that you do will prosper. You, you become fruitful. You, you become blessed by God, prospering in the things of God. And I am not saying that your life is going to be easy peasy right? Because even the metaphor itself, it suggests if you're by a stream and your leaves aren't withering, other leaves might be withering. There might be things going on, famine, drought, those sorts of things, storms, and, and, and it's going to be hard. But if you are firmly planted, you will still produce. And so I want to be careful that we hear it the right way, that this is uh, telling us that whatever we do will prosper. And that's a promise that God is giving us. So how do we get this rootedness? How do we get to become these kinds of people? And again, I think the way forward, the way to embrace this is to actually make Bible reading, Bible engagement, a habit, a pattern that you say, I'm going to do this thing. I'm going to somehow get into the Bible. And obviously church is one of those elements to that, but what else could you be doing? Now, the fruitfulness is going to show up. That's what the Bible promises, but, but it also shows up in research that if you begin to do this thing, it will change your life. I've told you over and over again about some, some different studies. I figured this morning I'd just show you. But there's, uh, there have been several studies where people have looked at growing Christians and they ask them a bunch of questions. What are the things that you do? What are the things that you believe? What are the spiritual practices that you have? And this one is called MOVE and it's a follow-up to another survey that was done. But this one was identifying people who are growing spiritually, what are they consistently doing? They looked at all these different categories because some are baby Christians and some are growing and some are getting more and more immature and some are mature. And they said, what are some of the things that kind of moved them from one category to the next that helped them to become more Christ-like? And sure enough, 
maybe 15 items showed up on lists. Different things that they said, look, people who are growing are doing these different things. Then toward the back of the study, this is called MOVE, um, toward the back of it, there's a little sidebar. And I want to share this with you. I'm just going to read it to you. But it's a little sidebar called Vanilla Ice Cream and Spiritual Growth. So pay attention with me if you can. This is an analogy. This is a little illustration of how significant Bible reading is. If your local ice cream parlor could sell only one flavor, it would sell vanilla. This isn't just because vanilla ice cream is the most popular flavor, although that is true. It's because vanilla ice cream is hugely popular. In fact, it's twice as popular as the second favorite flavor, which is chocolate. And in turn, chocolate is twice as popular as any other ice cream flavor available. So your ice cream parlor would choose vanilla if it had to. It would choose vanilla, hands down, no contest. Church pastors have an equally compelling option. If they could do only one thing to help people at all levels of spiritual maturity grow, their choice would be equally clear. They would inspire, encourage, and equip their people to read the Bible, specifically to reflect on Scripture for meaning in their lives. Reflection on Scripture is the spiritual equivalent of vanilla ice cream because its influence on spiritual growth far exceeds every other option available. This means that when we consider the most significant spiritual catalyst across the entire continuum, the Bible's influence transcends all other catalysts, much like vanilla ice cream's popularity dwarfs the other flavors. Hands down, no contest. When it comes to spiritual growth, nothing beats the Bible. It will show up in the fruitfulness of your lives. If you engage with it, it will, there will be evidence of it. It'll change you. God will speak to you through his word. So here's my question. Are you engaging with God through his word? Are you meditating on his law? Are you reflecting on it and allowing it to become the delight of your life and the influence over the choices that you're making? If not, let's figure out how to do that together. Let's figure out how to do more and more Bible engagement. And it might look like coming up with a Bible reading plan, going on version, or just Googling it, but just saying, how can I engage with the Bible? It might just look like you're going to pick up a Bible at home and you're just going to start in the book of John and just start reading and reflecting on what it means for you. But if you will do that, if you will do that, the Bible is telling us the fruit will show up, that it'll show up in your lives, that everything that you do will prosper that God's blessing and his favor will be on you. And so we need to be the kind of people who are moving in that direction because we believe that to be true. Now, if the godly get to experience the blessing and the prosperity, the wicked can't claim that. That's what verse four tells us. Not so the wicked. They're like chaff that the wind blows away. They're like chaff that after the harvest, there's the, the leftover, the husk, the different kind of remains after the harvest goes through and is saying it's like that and it just blows away. So this week, I mean, if you had a tree, you know what I'm talking about. The snow came and then it melted and then the leaves just rained down off of the trees. And so we went into our yard. There's a kind of a forested area between our yard and a cornfield and all of these trees, all of the leaves fell down. We, we raked it up into this huge pile. My kids go outside and they're like, oh, this is amazing. And they start jumping into it. And they're having so much fun. But they're these little leaves that are very brittle. And so they, the pile is huge. But after they've been jumping in it for a while, the leaves are breaking up into smaller and smaller pieces. And the, 
the pile's kind of shrinking, and then we put it into the bags, but there gets a point where you get to the bottom of the pile, and what do you find? It's like leaf dust, and it's just this kind of mess, and you're trying to rake it up and scoop it up, but you get to the point where you're like, let's just throw it up in the air, and it's going to you know, blow away because there's nothing, there's no substance to this thing. And that's what the Bible is saying about those who do not consider the things of God. Those who are turning away from God and they're not reflecting on his word or what he wants them to do, that there's this lack of substance, that there's a lack of weightiness and they become like chaff that the wind is able to just blow away. Now, I know that this is a hard teaching because sometimes our experience doesn't fit this. Sometimes we try to be righteous and we feel like we suffer. And then you look over, you know, you look over and you see somebody who you know isn't following God and they seem to be prospering. So why is it that Psalm 1 says it this way and our experience says it sometimes the exact opposite way? Well, the Bible's not naive about that. It shows up in multiple places. Jeremiah admitted as much in Jeremiah chapter 12. He said, why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all the faithless live at ease? And he's just being real. God, why is it that it's the exact opposite of what you said? People who are not following you seem to have it very easy, and I'm doing my best, and it is very hard. So where's your blessing? Where's your favor? Where's this promised prosperity? Another place, actually, in the book of Psalm, Psalm 73, the guy admits to almost stumbling over this reality. In verse 2 of Psalm 73, it says, As for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. The psalmist is going, I look at the world and I see these people who have no regard for God and everything's going fine for them. And I begin to envy them because I'm trying to follow him and it is not as easy. So how do we reconcile this? How do we bring these things together? Well, Psalm 73 tells us, he said, I almost slipped when I thought about this. I envied the arrogant. But then he says, but then I went into the temple. And I considered the outcome. He, he goes into the temple and he recognizes it might not play out in the time frame that we would anticipate, but God is true to his word. And that's what our psalm says as well. In Psalm chapter 1, in verses 5 and 6, it contrasts the outcome of whether or not you're going to be godly and pursue God or wicked. It, t- it tells us that there is a difference and it is coming and it might not be immediate, but it is there. In verse 5, it says, Therefore the wicked will not stand in judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. People who do not regard God one day will have to stand before God. People who do not think about what God wants for their lives will have to give an account for every decision that they've made and every word that they've spoken, and they will have to be before God in judgment, and it will not go well for them unless they are placing their faith in him. So they will not stand in judgment and they won't participate in the assembly of the righteous. They're not going to enjoy the fellowship of being together with God and with God's people. They're not going to be able to do that. For the Lord, look at verse 6, for the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. The Lord knows his own. He's watching over the way of the righteous. He's in relationship with us because of our faith in him, and he, he knows us. So we get, this, we get this nearness to him, but it's telling us that we should be careful because the way of the wicked leads to destruction. So we want to be people who recognize the difference between these two ways of life. Now, here's my question I said at the beginning. Psalm 1 gives us 
two ways to live. So you have the godly and the wicked. Now here's the question, which camp do you fall in? Do you consider yourself to be a follower of God, delighting in him, and you're godly, and you're good, and righteous, and all these different things that have been described here? Or are you kind of on the other side, and you're saying, well, actually, I'm kind of wicked. The truth is, it's not that clear-cut. That even reading the Bible, it's not, it's not like you can go through the Bible and go, here are all the good guys, here are all the bad guys. The truth is, it's all a mixture. It's telling us that there's a choice to be made. It's inviting us right on the front end of the entire book of Psalms saying, you can choose to delight in, the, in, in God. But there are different, there, there are different trajectories. So how do, we, how do we make sense of this? D.A. Carson, he points out, if you read your Bible, um, you start going through the Bible and looking at these people who are righteous, you find out they're not so righteous. Abraham, the father of a great nation, was a liar chosen by God, given the promises of God, given the gospel, as Galatians 3.8 tells us, the good news of what God is going to do through him and his descendants and ultimately through Christ. What does he do? He gets himself in a pickle and he says, that woman, I'm married to her. She's my sister. And he begins to lie. And he does it once, then he does it again. Abraham's a liar. You look at Noah and, you know, God told him, you're experiencing the grace of the Lord and build a boat. He builds it. He does all these different things. Then he gets, he gets drunk and exposes himself. You go through the Bible and you find all these different people. Moses, humblest man on earth, humblest man to ever live, is a murderer. He killed an Egyptian. David, the Bible tells us King David, this incredible leader of the people of God, the one who, you know, the Bible describes as kind of the, the most excellent king. When we look at his story, what does he do? He, fall, he, he seduces a woman. He commits adultery. When she gets pregnant, he tries to have her husband murdered and ultimately does. He deceives a bunch of people. He lies about all kinds of different things. And the Bible says this is a man after God's own heart. So when you start reading the Bible and you go, okay, how do we become the, the good guys? It's not that easy. It's not that easy. I'm going to show you here in just a moment how to bring these things together. But I think part of reading the Bible is that it exposes our need for a Savior. So the Bible, when you delight in the law of the Lord, here's what it's going to do to you. It's going to reveal your need for a Savior. And I really do think that's what Psalm 1 is designed to do. Psalm 1 and 2, they come together in a pair. They're actually kind of the introduction to the entire book. And so in Psalm 1, we're given this two ways to live. But in Psalm 2, I think we get to see how we can embrace this way of righteousness. It's through the Lord's anointed, through his son, through his king. We have to place our faith in him. So when we say we're going to begin to read our Bibles, we're going to try to delight in the law of the Lord, the Bible is going to do some work on us, friends. It's going to do some stuff to us. Now, let me tell you three things that the Bible is designed to do. Now, this is something that the church throughout the history of the church has pointed out. The Bible has multiple uses. So let me explain them to you uh, briefly, and you'll see how this will affect your Bible reading. One of the ways that the Bible works is it helps us to know the things of God, and it's a good thing. It restrains sinfulness. So if God made the world and we start reading in his word what we should do as humanity, we come to find out there are certain things that we shouldn't do. We shouldn't kill somebody else, right? We shouldn't 
murder somebody. We shouldn't steal from somebody. We shouldn't lie. And a part of what the Bible does is it gives us those categories, and if we'll follow it, everything gets a little bit better. It's a common grace of God that he uses his word to help humanity. And this is a good thing. Um, Sometimes we'll critique our children's ministry because it's hard to teach children the gospel, but sometimes we feel like we're just teaching them morals. You know, we're just teaching them to be good kids. But the truth is, that's an important first step, that we want our kids to be good kids. And then we want them to see how hard it is to be good so that they would come to trust in the Savior. But first off, we want him to be good. So Harrison, he's my boy, and he is a great boy. But he's like any other kid. He does stuff. And one of the things he'll do is he'll, he'll eat a little yogurt packet or a little applesauce thing. And we tell him, please, if you eat this, just throw it away. But what does he do? He goes over to the couch. There's a pillow there. Gets done. Puts it under the pillow. It's like, dude, the garbage is right here. I don't get it. So we say, okay, what is this, Harrison? What, what is this? We go, I don't know. I say, who, who did this? Who put this there? And if Ash is asking, dad. Dad did it. He'll blame me. And we tell him, okay, dude, we love you. And you need to know that. But we want you to tell the truth, even if it feels like it's going to get you in trouble. It's going to be better for you in the long run. We're trying to teach him to be a truth teller. And he, he knows that. He knows that that's what we want. And we keep rehearsing this over and over again. But it's just so much easier to not throw it away and then to lie about it. But we want him to be a truth teller. So we use the law to show him, dude, this is what we, this is what we want from you. We want you to be a good boy. And, and later on, as he matures and can handle some of those abstract concepts, we'll talk about why is it so hard to tell the truth? Why do you, why do you just naturally lie about it? And that's the gospel. We'll make those connections. But in the meantime, I want him to tell the truth. That's what the law can do. You read it and you begin to realize this is what God requires from us. And I should do that. But then the second thing is when you start to realize what God requires from you and how hard it is to actually do that, what are you going to do? When you know that there are certain things that God is asking you, you are my creation. This is how you ought to engage in the world. And you go, I'm trying as hard as I can. I just, I can't seem to do it. I can't seem to stop lying. I can't seem to stop engaging in this thing that I know is offensive to you. Here's what the, here's what the law is doing. It's driving you to Christ. The second use of the law, one of the uses of the law is to help us recognize that when we look at it and we say, this is what I should be doing, and then we can't do that, we say, what other hope do I have than to turn to one who can do it for me? This is what St. Augustine said when he was writing on this. He says, as we try to fulfill the law's requirements and we become tired of our weakness, the law invites us to ask for the help of grace. When you start reading the Bible and you realize what God demands from you and you struggle to do that, where else are you going to turn but to the grace of God? That's part of what the law can do for you. And then the third thing is, One of the third uses of the law is once you have asked for that grace of God and you received help, you don't disregard the Bible. Like, I'm glad it got me there, but I don't give a rip anymore what God thinks. No, what do you do? You go right back to the Bible and you realize that this is also useful for you as a Christian. It's going to show you how to not only delight in him, but for him to delight in you. It's going to show you how to live your life. And you're going to look at the Bible and see there instructions and teachings and guidance and 
and you're going to enjoy that. It's going to become something that you delight to do because of the fact that you've been received by grace. So the Bible is such an important thing for us as a church to engage with. Let me, in closing, just give a few final thoughts. I'll invite the band to come as well. A few final thoughts. Let's be people who read the Bible routinely. Let's be people who delight, who learn to delight in the law. When we read it, we want to know God. We want to delight in him. We're not just covering material. We're seeking to know him. Let's be the kind of people who try to do what the Bible says. And let's understand that the entire Bible is designed in this way. Psalm 1 and 2 and the whole thing is designed to help us place our faith in Jesus Christ, our Savior. So if you would, please stand with me and we will pray. And we will trust that if we will embrace this habit, this spiritual practice, it will change our lives. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the gift of your word and the way that it works in our hearts and in our lives. And we pray, God, that we would become a community of faith that delights in the law of the Lord and meditates on it day and night. That we would become a righteous people because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. That we would trust in him for all that he has done for us. And then, God, make us Bible people who love to continue to go to the word to find how to live faithfully and fruitfully for your glory, God. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.